Hello and welcome back to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. This is the second in a two-part interview with Beatrice Adler-Bolton, a writer, artist and co-host of Death Panel, a podcast about the political economy of health. She is also the co-author with Artie Verkant of Health Communism, which was recently published by Verso Books. As I say, this is the second of a two-part interview, so if you've heard the first part, I hope you enjoyed it, and if you haven't, feel free to go back and listen to the first one, or you could start with this one. Whilst they are on related topics, I think they work well in either order. In the previous episode, we discussed health communism and what it provides in terms of a critique of the NHS, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the Socialist Patients Collective also known as SPK. SPK were a group of patients who began organising within the psychiatric hospital of the University of Heidelberg in West Germany. Over the course of a couple of years, at the start of the 1970s, the group developed a critique of capitalism, psychiatry and the notion of health. This critique was developed as part of group meetings, mutual aid and political resistance. They were then met with allegations of political violence and subsequent repression by the state. I spoke to Beatrice about SPK's political analysis and why it remains so essential, as well as the validity of the allegations made against them and the horrific actions of the West German state in repressing the group. Let's talk about SPK because you you dedicated the book to the Socialist Patients Collective um, and you spend large parts of the book discussing their history, their theory, their praxis. Um, and personally, I, I was really excited by this part of the book. Um, I find SPK really exciting, really interesting, and there hasn't been nearly as much writing about them as... I think their work warrants. Um, so for people that haven't read the book or aren't familiar with SPK, could you explain who they were, what they were, um, when they were, and, and just kind of give a an introduction for people that aren't familiar with them? Yeah, of course. Um, SPK was a, a group that uh, was a patient group that formed in uh, 1970 in West Germany in the Heidelberg Hospital, um, which is a very 
long-standing teaching hospital that has a big kind of really important role in the history of biopsychiatry. So actually the kind Mm. of location of where this started is also in a lot of ways really poignant. So this is a very large teaching hospital in West Germany. And during the Cold War in the 70s, uh, there was a lot of patient organizing that was going on globally at the time. You had things like the anti-psychiatry movement, which starting in the 1950s really started to forward this popular Um, critique, mostly coming from professionals, uh, critiquing the authority and expertise of psychiatry, sort of what the point of psychiatry was. And the critique really centralized in a kind of real critique of long-term psychiatric incarceration practices, long-term holds. Um, And this was, uh, for many people who, who don't know, this is something we talk about in the book, but sort of up until... I would say the 80s, it was pretty common practice for people to have decades-long um, stints uh, in psychiatric care, where the the primary model of delivering this care was um, based on the kind of idea of economy of scale, of uh, very large warehousing institutions that housed thousands of patients under really substandard conditions And they created both research opportunities and education opportunities for uh, the profession of psychiatry, sort of developing and iterating on these practices. But they also tie into this larger, broader labor discipline function of sort of sorting the population of workers and non-workers. And then within those non-workers, sort of taking people out of society who are deemed unproductive and frankly, who were um, sort of marked by whatever standards as at the time as being, quote unquote, incurable. And therefore, it was a kind of question as to what resources anyone even deserved if they were never going to be cured back into a, quote unquote, normal worker. So this is a kind of really important context that a lot of the patient organizing that we think of happening in the 1970s really arises out of. And there are a lot of groups that, you know, were involved in, in sort of publications and making magazines and doing patient organizing and doing liberation organizing from within institutions, working with psychiatrists in some capacity, working against them in many capacities. And a lot of these groups faced really harsh crackdowns, really severe repression um, within their institutions. And it was a, a kind of really important struggle that in a lot of ways happened almost on two sides of the expertise divide, where you had this kind of professional revolt, which is uh, kind of not actually outside of the norms of of psychiatry. There have been several, quote-unquote, psychiatric revolutions throughout history where the profession, which has gone through a couple of different names (laughs) over the years, too, um, has sort of redefined itself and redefined its scope and its methods in in quite drastic shifts. And the anti-psychiatry movement um, in many ways is most broadly connected to this process of trying to end the warehousing model, the institutional model, the large total institution, it was kind of called. And what ended up happening is that this movement ultimately kind of burned out. A lot of it was... (laughs) This is like a whole other book that we're working on right now, but a lot of it is really because of this kind of decentralization that happens in response to deinstitutionalization, uh, the rise of nursing nursing homes and smaller private facilities, this kind of move away from uh, warehousing. But, you know, at the same time, what came out of it were some some really powerful 
kind of lines of thinking that that really shifted a lot of the ways that we think about madness. And when we talk about the anti-psychiatry movement and patient organizing, a lot of those kind of frameworks that people might know of by like some of the more popular figures within the movement, like Artie Lang, David Cooper, who are both UK-based, Thomas Saz, who is based in the US, things like the Hearing Voices Network or, um, you know, kind of mad rights movements that, that became really popular in the US, a lot of these were either on the professional side or on the patient side. And there was a lot of sort of antagonism often between some of these different groups and around methods. And SBK was a little different than all of them. And that's that's really part of the reason why we uh, initially became interested in their work, because you know, this kind of line that I've been saying of patients and providers need to collaborate, we need to sort of be working together. This was actually one of the founding um, sort of uh, igniting organizing principles of the group of people that ended up becoming SPK. And SPK didn't set out to be a patient organization or a patient liberation group. They didn't come together and say, we're going to form this liberation group. But what happened was that they started by being these were patients who were in a kind of low income clinic. This clinic was set up as a kind of secondary, a secondary diversion point. So you went through a first triage process. You got sent based on your income either to the sort of nicer clinic uh, with better ratios on staff and nicer facilities and privacy, or you got sent to the low income poly clinic. And people who were, you know, still resistant to treatment or not, you know, receiving the kind of producing the kind of feedback that doctors wanted from that polyclinic were then sorted to be sent to some of the few remaining institutions in Germany. And uh, so this was sort of a process of both psychiatrizing people, sort of labeling them, um, oftentimes for things that like nowadays would be totally normal, like homosexuality or smoking weed or wearing a leather jacket or growing a beard, you know, these kinds of uh, violations of social norms, which, which are then pathologized. And uh, so this was a kind of site for people to be sorted, um, to go and sort of be put into this continuation of the warehousing model. And in, in response to the kind of deprivation that they were experiencing to the frustrations and the different types of care that was really being gatekept by income and socioeconomic level and class, a lot of the patients in this, this low-income polyclinic had started working together with one of their doctors and the, the people that the doctor was training, mm -hmm. Dr. Wolfgang Huber, to do self-directed therapy and self-directed research, to actually have a hand in their care and their treatment. They were, you know, organizing together on the floor. They were doing group therapy. They were trying out experimental models um, at the end of the day in the doctor's home. And the doctor was working with patients to help them manage their medication, saying, you know, what, what does it feel like for you to be on Thorazine all day, every day? Do you like that? Do you want that? And that might be a, a question that people now would be like, well, that's just totally regular. What do you mean? But at the time, that was a very uh, unorthodox way of dealing with patients. And ultimately, because of this unorthodox approach that Huber had to the patients and because of some of the critiques that the patients had come to together in their group therapy, being a little too political for the university, they decided, you know what, we're, we're not okay with these people doing their own therapy here, we're going to shut this down. And they sort of, they fired Huber and they didn't really give him notice. They 
uh, abruptly ended the prescriptions and the medications for the people who were participating, ended their therapy, said, you know, threw away their bulletin board and said, you know, you're going back to the old program. You know, you don't really have a choice about it. And it was that that actually is the kind of moment that forms SPK. They form um, in response to this repression from the university to having their care taken away, to having their embodied expertise uh, sort of thrown to the side after feeling really the kind of therapeutic um, benefit of, of having their lived experience recognized as, as, um, as valid and as, as part of what would help them understand what they were experiencing and how to not only like sort of heal from the, the trauma of um, sort of experiencing um, institutionalization, but begin to form new ways of thinking about themselves and about illness and capitalism and work and value and life um, that were empowering and that, that were political. Yeah. Not just uh, kind of assertions that a disabled life or a mad life is worth living. It was beyond that. It was, it was really saying that the point of taxonomy, the point of labels, the point of a lot of care at the end of the day was not to make anyone feel better, but to make people better workers, more docile workers, more well-behaved workers, making people not just better so that they can be better and appreciate life and enjoy things and, you know, not feel whatever symptoms they're feeling, but making people better solely for the reason of returning them to work and not finding much value or therapeutic value in things that perhaps made people feel better, but did not make them better workers, like therapy oriented around a kind of political awakening or a kind of uh, group that was forming around the idea that illness itself was a revolutionary identity and that they had a kind of political role that they could fill in their madness, in their sickness, in their refusal to be reassimilated back into the kind of um, working wage system. And in their refusal to, you know, go through things like conversion therapy and reject their homosexuality or their, you know, appreciation of leather jackets or their political sure. beliefs or whatever. And yeah. so this is really the context of SPK. And they were they were very militant. They um, occupied the offices of Heidelberg University. They really upset a lot of these liberal reformers who were coming in trying to put a nice face on the kind of new biopsychiatry, trying to move away from the kind of Nazi idea of um, mental illness, biopsychiatry that Heidelberg University had been unfortunately quite famous for and was quite well known for developing a lot of these diagnostic criteria that would go into sorting who would be part of the T4 program and who would be spared, right? And so these kinds of critiques that SPK was making that, no, you didn't kick the, the Nazis out of Heidelberg. And no, many of these doctors, while they reject eugenics, still devalue um, lives based on pathology and don't see us as human. And we deserve care. We deserve a role in our treatment, a role in researching ourselves and a role in sort of understanding what makes us feel better and not just sort of accepting these things as um, good for us because they make us back into workers. And so what they ended up doing was, was sort of organizing around this principle of not only deserving care and deserving freedom, but deserving a role as not just subjects, but actors in the scientific process, not just 
people who become fodder for a research career or a doctor's medical innovation, but that, you know, these are people with real lives who are, um, you know, not objects, who are part of the kind of way that science is made and that we need to recognize this kind of expertise. And this critique was fundamentally very challenging to a budding biopsychiatry movement that was really trying to um, deal with, as I was saying, there's a kind of professional revolt going on at the time where you have these kind of opposing camps within psychiatry who each have different methods. And there's a kind of argument at this point around, you know, is anti-psychiatry valid or is this just kind of undermining our authority and expertise as psychiatrists? And then you had the patient organizing and this was kind of, these were all kind of sort of separate things and SPK really tried to unite them and bring them together. And not just that, but to bring it together fundamentally with a critique of the political economy, with a critique of the um, program of, of capitalism in general, with a critique of the Marshall Plan, the United States involvement in sort of creating um, this ambassadorship out of West Germany for capitalism and how psychiatry fit into that. And this was really the furthest thing from, from welcome. And Ironically, it also kind of invigorated some of the professionals who were working um, in the anti-psychiatry movement. And there was a lot of correspondence and a lot of overlap that was going on um, during the year and a half where SPK was actually active. And as SPK began to sort of get a little bit more media attention, this became a huge liability for the university. And ultimately what happened was that SPK was criminalized. They were cracked down upon. And this is something we sort of walk through in the book, which is how what really happens with the story of SPK is not just a story about what our care is for and how expertise is discounted and how patients are treated like objects and also you know, raw material for building scientific careers and universities and, and accolades, but also sort of why this critique was threatening to yeah. the state. Why this critique deserved the crackdown it got and what that kind of tells us about the way that medicalization and politics sort of exist in the broader cultural imaginary. Yeah, I, I want to come back to some of the specific aspects of their activities and their politics and some of their views on various different aspects of treatments and institutional relationships. But before I do that, I do want to ask you about I mean, you've covered it a little bit there, but I wanted to ask you about the relationship to the broader anti-psychiatry movement, because you're quite clear in the book that you see them as distinct from the movement, despite there being kind of correspondence between people like Basalia in Italy. I mean, what, why, why, why do you feel it is so important to distinguish them from anti-psychiatry kind of writ large? And, and also, I'm curious, was this... A distinction that they made at the time was were they kind of, I mean it's tricky because even people in the anti-psychiatry movement didn't call themselves yes. anti-psychiatrists <laughs> but um yeah was that something they were kind of articulating at the time as well um I mean that's kind of two questions wrapped into one so apologies but yeah no it's okay I mean anti-psychiatry is, is such a funny label because yeah. as a as a label it was you know near universally used and then almost immediately rejected by most of the people using it. And yeah. it, it means a lot of different things depending on the context. But why I, I try and 
always think of SPK separate um, and why Artie and I wrote it this way and sort of made a point to to say that these are sort of separate things is is twofold. And one is because SPK themselves did not see themselves as part of the anti-psychiatry movement because of the expertise barrier. Right. They they sought the kind of they sought the kind of like permission from society to have their critiques take up a, a role that was equal to the critiques of of people like Basaglia and Lang and Cooper and Saz and Easterson and all of these kind of professionals who had this role of being public critics of of the practice of psychiatry and the kind of norms of psychiatry and what they're for. But they were very cognizant of the fact that they did not enjoy the kind of professional uh, benefit of the doubt that a lot of the anti-psychiatrists had. And um, they saw this kind of relationship between doctor and patient and the authority and the directionality of the authority, actually, that kind of was so rigid to be part of the limitation of, of, of anti-psychiatry itself, that part of the, the limitation of the work with some of the people they were corresponding with, and they were very clear about this, was that it was coming from doctors, that it, it was not coming in collaboration with patients. And in some instances, it was. In, in, in Basaglia's case, it definitely was. The, the metapsychiatry movement in Italy was, I would say, a little bit different than the rest of the anti-psychiatry movement. And yeah. yes, there were moments in, in the UK, in some small sort of experiments here and there, um, where you had a lot more collaboration, but broadly speaking, the kind of popular understanding and functionally where a lot of the work existed and where that kind of register of critique was, was within the realm of the professional. And patient organizing was very much sort of seen as separate. And SPK really tried to unite these two models of organizing and critique into one coherent praxis. And this is actually why Sartre who uh, wrote a kind of letter to them that, that is the introduction to their manifesto, Turn Illness into a Weapon. This is why Sartre says that they, SPK's praxis is the only possible radical form of anti-psychiatry because it actually, beyond questioning psychiatry itself, it questioned the real expertise at the heart of the matter that a lot of the um, more professional critics uh, didn't necessarily touch the same way. Though, though you know, to be fair, people like Cooper later in his life and later in his career actually did begin to question some of these things. If we look at like David Cooper's contribution to like the legendary um, semiotext schizo culture issue, yeah. for example, you know, <laughs> Cooper says that like all psychiatrists either need to, you know, be killed or commit suicide because <laughs> the, the, pre the profession, uh, you know, he says like, you know, theoretically, killed or commit suicide and he actually makes a joke in that and there's a there's a footnote that refers yeah. to spk that says and the problem is often that when people say like the the entire profession needs to commit suicide that people are taken literally and not metaphorically yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh that that was kind of spk's undoing but i think spk was very serious actually about their critiques of the role of expertise the role of authority and the role of the kind of critique that a doctor could make and sort of how that was limited. And I think for that reason, that's why people like Basaglia, who again, you know, is coming from metapsychiatry, the models in Italy were very different than a, a lot of the other deinstitutionalization models. 
there are a lot more thinkers other than Basaglia. I highly recommend John Foote's uh, work if you'd like to learn more about that. It's it's fantastic. And John gets into how, you know, beyond Basaglia, who everyone hears about, there is a, a yeah. much broader movement there of people who are doing really radical work. And you can also just quickly, I have to plug the previous episode with John on this podcast as well, if people are interested in that. It's fantastic, I have to say. <laughs> Great you. interview. Thanks. And, <laughs> And um, <laughs> so, you know, the thing that is really cool if we start to think about also the relationships that were maintained um, between SPK and other uh, anti-psychiatry movement folks, you know, the relationship they had with Basaglia was one of the longer ones that they had with any professional, even to the point of him offering refuge for SPK members who had fled the country after they were criminalized to come live and study with his physician students that, that were, you know, to have the sort of patient organizers from SPK come in as equals to the people he was sort of training as, as you know, quote unquote, doctors and, and medical professionals. And he really um, faced a lot of flack. And actually, uh, there was like a whole um, physical incident where they were like attacked at one of Basaglia's facilities because SPK had this kind of international reputation at that point. This was, I think, nineteen seventy three or 1974, but Vesaglia was very old then, and they were actually working on an Italian translation of Turn Illness into a Weapon, SPK's manifesto, that Vesaglia was going to write a forward for. And John actually found, John Foote found in Vesaglia's notes, this unpublished, partially finished translation and introduction to SPK. And I think if we're kind of looking at how SPK their legacy sort of existed, um, they've been broadly erased from any kind of institutional account of anti-psychiatry. And so that's the third reason or the second half of the second reason <laughs> <laughs> why I think it's important to, to enforce the separation between them and anti-psychiatry because, yeah. you know, in the historical record, uh, what remains are the experts and not the patient organizers often. And while a lot of the mad rights movement has worked to kind of reclaim a lot of these frames, a lot of the groups that have gotten attention have been the ones, for example, that have like collaborated with well-known um, professional figures like Thomas Saz in the United States and the kind of groups that were working with him. You know, and the model of, of what patient organizing in the 70s was, when people think of it, when they think of that kind of anti-psychiatry patient movement work that was happening, a lot of it is very anti-medication um, and fully anti-medicalization. -medi and that is just categorically not what SPK was going for. And so I think for that, for that reason also as well, to sort of make a distinction um, and point towards both the erasure of SPK in the historical record, and despite the fact that they were on this kind of professional level that they've been written out of any kind of understanding of this professional revolt, but also that they really took a different line of critique, not just than, than other patient groups, but then a lot of other anti-psychiatry thinkers, many of whom, um, some of whom categorically rejected mental illness is not being real, not existing at all, being fully socially constructed or rejected medication, or like Thomas says, who felt that all care was a contract and only as good as someone believed it to be based on what they were paying for it. And so SPK, coming from the perspective they were coming from, you know, it's just so different. You do not see that kind of nuance 
in Lang's work. You don't see that nuance in Cooper's work, ironically, until after he's been exposed to SVK and spent time himself in a warehouse facility in the Global South as a patient, you know. And this this critique is just so much more, I think, it just feels, I think, for a lot of people in our contemporary moment, it's been wonderful to hear from people reading about SPK because they're like, oh, this feels like a more modern embrace of a kind of hybrid approach to psychiatric critique where it's not just hardline, fuck all pharmaceuticals. It's much more understanding of a kind of almost like a cyber feminist approach yeah, or yeah. a kind of transliberatory approach to thinking about medicalization, both as a a means of con- control, pathologization, criminalization, but also liberation and comfort and treatment and realization of a kind of full self, right? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like kind of medication as a technology that's kind of contingent upon lots of other things, uh, you know, having different outcomes based on kind of context and usage and all these much more complex things. It's funny, that was what my next question was actually going to be about. I was going to ask you, and well, I still ask you um, about the doctor-patient relationship. How SPK thought about that relationship, how they practiced it differently, and kind of how that how they did it and breaks with the normative model of what that relationship, quote unquote, should or you know is is supposed to be. You know, even now. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is really foundational, right? This is mm. this is the most important thing that I think you can take from their work is this real Im- real interrogation of what the doctor-patient relationship as many of us still experience it today, what that serves and what that is for and how you know these kind of divisions and fundamentally, you know, this kind of rests on the myth, and this is a really big theme in the book about the fantasy of health, what, what SPK called a biologic fascist fantasy of health. The idea that there is a kind of healthy person somewhere and that, you know, the doctor as the sort of therapeutic authority needed to be always in this position of being perceived as healthy and that the patient is kind of on the other end of that spectrum and never the two shall meet. And that is very much kind of the fundamental dynamic that SPK's critique tried to wake people up to. They 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 saw a lot of the work they did as a kind of therapeutic political praxis where they would come together, they would talk about the things that they're experiencing. I mean, a lot of the techniques that they um, you know, pioneered and were working on are, are very similar to what you would see in any contemporary group therapy practice where you have a lot of peer-to-peer, self-led, self-directed support um, oriented around thinking about yourself and your symptoms, not just in a kind of personal context, but in a social and political one as well. I mean, they said it was about trying to turn happy unconsciousness into unhappy consciousness and that there was a kind of important political transition that could happen um, and that while experiencing illness and madness, um, pathologization, labeling, incarceration, that while these are experiences that can um, awaken a kind of political identity and can be the basis for a revolutionary praxis, that you're not automatically just sort of entered into this experience via that subject position, but that you actually have to deliberately 
undertake a kind of process of radicalization and of, of beginning to see the way that your identity is not necessarily inherent to your pathology, but is structured by a wide range of social, political, and normative um, assumptions and expectations that don't have a lot to do with you, but have a lot to do with labor discipline and capitalism. <laughs> and so I think it's 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 really key uh, that their critique um, was always toward helping people understand the imbrications of health and capitalism, the way that health was a fantasy and the role that the doctor sort of uh, social role had in both perpetuating these practices that are really geared towards, um, you know, making people available for extraction, towards cure as a means of recertification for work, um, towards therapy, towards being a better worker, not towards intrinsic valuation of life or just uh, the fact that we all deserve to experience joy and comfort and not feel like we're dealing with symptoms that we can't handle alone without any help or support, that there are sort of <laughs> reasons to receive treatment, not not for being able to go back to work, just for, you know, wanting treatment and and feeling that there's a therapeutic benefit in it. And more importantly, kind of how that therapeutic benefit can actually exponentially increase if you don't feel like an object, if you don't feel like you're just there to provide data for someone's career or um, be medicated without any input or feedback as to, you know, if you're liking it, if it's working for you, if it's doing what it was promised to do, um, if it's the right dosage even, you know, and, and SPK said really, you know, what matters about therapy for the medical sort of industrial complex, as we would call it now, is this fundamental relationship of being able to repair the body for work by the psychiatrist, the doctor, they're a sick person like any of us, is what SPK argued, that, the, that this kind of mirage of the doctor, both as an authority with one direction and as a kind of healthy ideal um, managing the sick, that these are fantasies that exist to perpetuate capitalism and to turn people away from these kinds of critiques because when you start to look at the ways that maybe capitalism doesn't wholesale make mental illness, but certainly can take certain symptoms of mental illness and make them unacceptable or take symptoms of you know, uh, physical illness and mark them as incurable, mark that condition of life as non-worthy as a result of the mere association of a pathology in a human being that these systems fundamentally, they're productive of suffering and they're productive of these kinds of invisible social relationships that always exist outside of traditional wage work, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, shout out to Sophie Lewis, who I know you just interviewed <laughs> for the show also, yeah. who talks about social reproduction a lot. But when we think about social reproduction and the kind of ideas about how workers are maintained, there is an incredible role that medicalization plays in social reproduction that is also a productive economic role and a whole industry and a whole kind of uh, global network of authority, expertise, and, and standards that exists as this very important social reproductive force. And one of the key ways that it continues to make workers 
is through the division of doctor and patient. And so if we want care towards the point of care, right? Because SBK wasn't saying like, we don't need treatment. They were like, we want treatment because we want treatment. We want care. We don't want care that's given to us only because it makes us better workers, makes us workers again. We deserve and demand care that is for us, that is for the point of doing it, not for the point of anything else. And that if we want to abandon eugenics, if we want to really end the legacy of the Nazification of health, which again, you know, they're sort of within this institution that this is where the grandfather of the DSM worked. This is many years before the Nazis, right? This is where pathology, you know, was solidified and made and made to be modern at Heidelberg University. This is a really important symbolic institution in the history of biopsychiatry. And they felt, you know, where better to levy this critique than really the kind of heart of the beast, right? Where (laughs) this fundamental role of pathology as a means of sorting the working class into surplus and worker, this is where they felt they could really kind of create revolutionary potential through praxis, through critique, through community building, through, you know, doing things like uh, that we would recognize today as just very basic mutual aid, like interrupting arrests, providing protection for people who were fleeing domestic abuse, creating um, a space where people who were unhoused were able to get care, treatment, become a part of the community and receive no uh, strings attached support. And this was the kind of, you know, experimental model that they were just getting started with when they were criminalized. I mean, they barely got a chance to do anything. This was an organization that existed for a year and a half. And again, as I said, it's really important to understand that they didn't just sit down today and say, you know, okay, it's May 1st, we're going to form a revolutionary (laughs) vanguard today. This was always in reaction to rescinding treatment, removing care towards real proof to their critique, right? Which was that the hospital didn't actually care about them getting medication if the medication wasn't making them docile, that the medication served no purpose to the university if the medication was being given and they were still political dissent in the group of people receiving medication and that, you know, they really saw the repression that they experienced as providing additional evidence to their critique. And they were really quite sure of it. And, um, you know, Huber faced incredible professional consequences as a result. And as did the, the many people who were training professionals who were working with them. And the movement itself was characterized as quote unquote, you know, laymen running their own therapy. And if you look at a lot of like contemporary accounts that are happening in the mid 70s after their their criminalization, you see some of the people that were collaborating with them in 1971, writing stuff in 1976. It's like an SPK was the crazy brigade who was there to just recruit people for the Bader Monhoff gang. And this is why left demands are always terroristic and, you know, left organizing is really dangerous and needs to be suppressed when it shows up inside of your institution. And this is really the legacy that SPK has within the professional literature is not one of therapy for therapy's sake, care for care's sake, medication for the sake of 
feeling good, right? And and the kind of benefits of biopsychiatry that can be gleaned out of all the horror that kind of exists as a context of why many of these technologies exist and why we have them today, which is a regrettable association, but one that like acknowledging doesn't reduce the value of, of, of the benefits of that therapy, right? But it perhaps provides the patient with the kind of context they need to feel real ownership over it and not this kind of uh, abstract relationship where they're failing by not living up to the therapy or they're failing by not having the results that they're told they're supposed to have. They're not, you know, maybe responding to the medication in a way that's going to make them a better worker, that's going to make them have a more stable employment and therefore easier, less brutal life. And so much of what was sort of being fed to these patients and what they were resisting was this idea that these kind of systemic uh, moments of abandonment of the just the rhetoric, the technology is falling short of people's needs, that this was not uh, a failure of individuals, but that this was a sort of systemic and structural political issue that could really be addressed through a kind of revolutionary praxis that began to specifically address this division between doctor and patient that was what perpetuated um, the kind of continued use of therapies that were dangerous, that were disabling, you know, like things like lobotomies or the use of chemical incarceration, you know, and ultimately what what they were received as were, you know, quote unquote, dangerous, crazy people yeah. um, who uh, were ungrateful and who were critiquing the hand that fed them. Yeah. Yeah. Could you outline a little bit the um, process of violent repression that SPK were met with and then we could also maybe get onto sort of how that's replicated in, yeah, as you say, like the literature, well, some literature failing to recognise them and then literature in fields like the kind of counterterrorism studies sort of overly focusing on them. Um, could you explain how the German state very sort of violently and successfully repressed what it was that they were doing? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what's so important is to to understand that, you know, the moment that this critique was being levied, the context of the work that SPK did while it was short-lived was in this, this moment where West Germany was a kind of global brand ambassador for capitalism during the Cold War. So the repression of SPK really needs to be considered within the context of Cold War anti-left propaganda. And Many of the accounts of SPK that you might read, other than the one in Health Communism, actually pretty much universally a lot of the accounts addressing this group will unequivocally reproduce the accusations that they were charged with, which was essentially, you know, building bombs and a couple, quote unquote, attempted uh, bombings that occurred and essentially, quote unquote, like anti-government organizing, uh, criminal gang organizing. And, you know, we say these kinds of words for for crimes, right? And like crimes obviously have a social context and a legal context, and this is a social construction. But it's also really important to specifically understand some of the laws that were applied to SPK. A lot of the laws that were used against this group were laws that were sometimes actually put in place to be able to um, seek remediation for the Nazi era, that were able to sort of infiltrate and be able to disband groups like of 
people who were loyal to um, Nazi ideology, who were organizing to continue it. So, for example, there were charges against them for these bombs that were allegedly planted and made. And they said that basically the authorities said that, oh, these working groups, these these skill groups, these therapy groups that SPK was organizing, this was a front for terrorist training, for militant training. I mean, it's if you look back to coverage in the US and UK of like the Taliban going into the war in Afghanistan, I mean, and you look at the descriptions of the activities of SPK by some of the people that sought to criminalize them that, that came after them, it, it's kind of amazing to sort of see like the echoes in the description of the activities of the Taliban are so similar to the way that SPK's activities were described in a lot of the reporting. And that's not to say that like there's any equivalence or that, yeah. you know, the Taliban was not training people, but it's it's I want to just sort of have people understand sort of how extreme the accusations were against yeah. SPK. The, the idea was that none of it was therapy, that it was all a front for a complicated, well thought out, pre-organized and premeditated wholesale uh, terrorist organization training and recruitment program. And that was what they were charged with. And again, no one went in that day being like, we're going to form a revolutionary patient group. This was always in reaction, right? So the, the accusations are especially ridiculous. But in the context of this accusation of there being bombings at all, like these are, we have to think about this in the context of like what was going on in the 70s, mm. what was going on with the Weather Underground, what was going on with the Black Panther Party, with things like, you know, what the FBI was doing in the United States to crack down on left-wing activists and the pressure that the FBI was putting on other countries to follow suit, particularly countries in Europe and especially West Germany, because again, West Germany at this moment is the kind of poster boy for capitalism during the Red Scare. And so SPK actually kind of offers in the same way that re-examining a history of the Black Panther Party um, can offer so much in terms of understanding the pathologization of left movements and how revolutionary activity and revolutionary thought is criminalized and um, repressed through uh, accusations of, of, of criminal behavior, you know, and yes, you know, maybe they did actually do that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't fundamentally matter <laughs> either yeah. way. And what matters is that this was used, whether they did it or not, as a pretense to shut down the patient organizing, to end the experimental program that was going on, to end all of the work that they were doing together, and to not only hold many of the members of SPK without charges, without trial under these laws, which again were sort of designed for very specific, you know, extenuating circumstances, um, they were used to you know, essentially paint a growing movement that SPK was just one part of, which was a kind of broader student-led political rebellion within West Germany and resistance to the Marshall Plan and to the kind of pro-capitalist society building that was occurring at the time in West Germany and things like the Berlin Wall and things like these kinds of moments of, of growing state securitization that was just happening 
And so they kind of become caught up in the crackdown on students. They become caught up in this kind of moment of hysteria from politicians where people are just really afraid of leftist thought. And that's fundamentally what's going on at this moment. And that's what's driving the pathologization of SPK and what's driving ultimately the charges that are levied against them. And SPK brings a lot of evidence in their own manifesto against the charges against them. And they maintained that these were, um, you know, accusations that were just completely overblown and that none of these sort of explosive devices had anything to do with them and that they were really just sort of like surveilling the university and doing organizing. But this was, again, like really not making Heidelberg look good. (laughs) And this was, again, part of this really important moment in psychiatry in West Germany. And the pathologization and the criminalization of SPK becomes this big kind of international cipher for what, you know, left organizing can be and what patient organizing can be if left unchecked. And it really begins to take on this life of just sort of, well, SPK had all these great ideas, but unfortunately, you know, they turn to violence. And, you know, fundamentally, it was really frustrating to Artie and I to always sort of go, okay, well, Let's see, you know, not a lot of the criminal records are actually um, available for the trial for SPK. A lot of those records have been destroyed. There are some very shady things that happened um, administratively during that period in West Germany with a lot of similar trials um, against activists. But, you know, they were held in conditions of torture. They were held in solitary confinement. They were held in lights for 24 hours a day. They were held in conditions designed to psychologically destabilize them. During the trial, they were brought in chained to stretchers. They were heavily sedated often during the trial. And they were really treated, you know, in this this manner of even their potential release, which was mandated. There was like a maximum sentence that they could be sentenced. They couldn't be uh, sentenced to jail for more than five years at the time. It was like four and a half, I think, was the maximum in, in the early 70s for the charges that they were given. And so... Two and a half years into their sentence, the authorities, uh, there are records available that show that they were basically starting to have meetings to say, okay, well, we can't let Dr. Huber out of prison. Let's um, get him decertified as sane. Um, Let's get him certified as, as mad. And then we can transfer him directly into a psychiatric facility. And that ended up not happening and he disappeared and, and sort of no one really knows what happened to them. But many of the members of SPK were chased by American authorities for the rest of their lives, even in, in down into the 90s and 80s, where you know the FBI is trying, the FBI is trying to like extradite people to to Germany um, to be like, here, West Germany, we found your your SPK terrorists in in Oklahoma, and they're like, we don't want them, like don't send us these people, like <laughs> yeah. you know. And even after West Germany moved on from really caring about SPK or wanting to chase them, the United States still had this obsession with crazy. European patient organizers that were going to come into the United States and sort of infect the population with their ideas and that this would spread, quote unquote, bedlam. And, you know, ultimately, many of the accounts of SPK have just sort of taken this criminalization and treated it like an uncomfortable fact. And, you know, not necessarily gone digging to see, okay, well, what is the 
evidence that they actually have and what what is the context of these charges. And if you start to look at, at that and you start to look at some of the few people who did stay in contact, like many from the meta-psychiatry movement supported the members of SPK and they came to West Germany for the trial. You know, Basaglia was too old. He didn't come himself. But like the Italian delegation that did come, many of them were also arrested at the trial and beaten up by the police for speaking out in support of the members of SPK. And, you know, we talk about the legacy that this has and the way that it it, it sort of lives on in the way that we both think of left demands as being often kind of pushing the boundaries of acceptability or of sanity. Um, the way that left movements are talked about is not able to be uh, satisfied by economic demands, but that, you know, the kind of fundamental, uh, also quote unquote, mental instability of, of, of leftist thought is really kind of tied up also in the story of SPK, but many people don't know the circumstances actually of sort of where a lot of these ideas come from and why it even matters that SPK was pathologized for their political beliefs and how that actually is not some sort of aberration or um, something that stands outside the norm, but that actually that was just a, a, another iteration in a longstanding practice of um, you know, political dissent essentially being labeled as um, non-rational behavior. Yeah. So one of the final things I'll ask you about is health communism is such a valuable document of this group. And I was really excited to hear in our emails before recording this conversation that since publishing the book, you've received more documents relating to their work in German and you're kind of working on translating them and archiving them and I just wondered if you are ready to kind of share what that might look like or what some of the materials you're receiving contain or refer to or yeah absolutely this is something that you know is very important to Artie and I and he and I for a long time have taken great inspiration from SPK's work in particular this kind of nuance that we were talking about about finding a way to kind of critique medicalization and critique pharmaceuticals and critique authority and also do that in a way that doesn't negate the lived experience of illness and the many of us who live modified quote so to speak by by pharmaceuticals um, yeah. who would not survive without them and yeah. as a as a patient um as a disabled person it was a wonderful experience you know 10 years ago to come across SPK's manifesto which is kind of one of the only things you can find of their work online or in a library if you even find it in a library but you know these PDFs are are available there's one uh, on internet archive for example um that might not be around much longer but for now <laughs> um but you know there it is their manifesto which is part manifesto and then part also kind of documentation of the, of the charges against them and the the way that the criminalization proceeded that is uh, available in a couple different translations one by Huber himself apparently and that one's a little harder to read than another one that's that's widely available online that's by an anonymous uh, translator uh, translated in 2013 but uh, we use both in the book to cite um, but Huber was a he was a big fan of Hegel and 
he was like a Hegelian early in his career and then kind of became an anti-Hegelian right before he started SPK's, uh, the work with SPK. And so a lot of his writing kind of takes on this like affective, like Hegelian style. And yeah. then when he, tra- when he like translated his own work from German to English, I kind of like got a little extra, even more Hegelian. <laughs> so the, so the Huber translation can be confusing and obtuse in certain areas, which is why, you know, I like actually kind of reading both. But these are these are works where there is they're not widely available. Sometimes you can find, you know, printed copies of the manifesto, but the the manifesto refers to a broad body of printed work that the SPK group made together during that year and a half. Some formations of SPK continued on. Um, there's another group that's sort of reformulated called Patient Front. They also published some things. They have a little bit of an online presence. That there, there is a kind of like very brief amount of, of information about them that's available. But what is consistent across all of what is available is references to these printed works that they put together on a weekly basis called patient infos. And these were like risographed pamphlets that they were making. Um, and they were distilling the things that they learned together and their praxis and their procedures. And they were preparing it for, for distribution because one of the big ideas that they talk about in the manifesto as being a component of what their goals as a group were were to try to not only educate themselves, but to spread what they were learning, to be able to like send out a box of patient infos to people in other countries, in other organizing formations, in other communities. And those people could then adopt SPK praxis in their own projects. And so this was a big component of how they were thinking about their work during that year and a half where that that group of people was really working on developing the SPK praxis that is that is sort of outlined in the manifesto. But a lot of these um, works are lost. They're not available. Um, they're not scanned. They're not online. Many of them were actually physically destroyed when there was a fire at the, at the publisher, um, which is like a very small sort of art house publisher that is not like a big publisher at all within Germany. And so these were small runs of, you know, handmade, almost like artist books um, in a lot of cases. And sometimes, you know, there there is reference to some of the materials that are in it. And there are excerpts from some of the patient infos that are in the manifesto. But there is always reference to the fact that there was more materials mm. that are not in there and more materials that, that were made, that were printed and that were distributed, but that many of which did not survive or did not make it. And this is a really common problem. When you try and study patient groups, you know, which is which is sort of what I do in addition to Death Panel, the podcast that we host and, and you know, writing is that I, I study like the materials that patients put together to try and educate each other towards towards self-liberation and sort of what are the ideas that help people get themselves free. And a, a big problem in this kind of work is the fact that a lot of these materials were destroyed by the institutions that they were created in, that they were destroyed in the context of, of criminalization. They were destroyed just because there was no money to archive them because this is work taking place outside of formal institutional structures that is self-directed, that is 
self-organized. And and so these are the kinds of things that don't make it into the archive, that don't become a part of, of the quote-unquote official history. And so for many years, um, Artie and I had been looking for anything and all things we could find um, about SPK and about the work that they did and, you know, just collecting years and years and years of, of, of any small mor- morsel. I mean, I'm like reciting footnotes off the top of my <laughs> head. That's how small a lot of the information was that we yeah. had to work with. But we were able to find a large group of original printed materials from this, this you know, large cache of patient infos that became a lot of these publications. There's one book that we have that is just photocopies of, of press coverage of the criminalization of SPK. We have one book that we found that is a book of music and songs that they uh, wrote together for one of the kind of working groups that they had. There was a working group that they had called Funktechnik, which was uh, kind of like DIY radio programming, but also radio building. And what was really popular at the time was a kind of um, Kunstradio model, which was happening in in Germany, where you would have these like hyper local radio stations where they were running on a local frequency. And so this was a big part of the student movement at the time where people would like physically gather in a location that was like close enough to the radio tower with the radio outside listening to the pirate radio station. And so SPK was like teaching people how to build these radios, how to do that kind of stuff. And that this kind of self-taught community building, but also like that these were all being documented in order to share with people was like a big part of what they were doing. The documentation, figuring out a way to make their results reproducible. Because again, like what everyone kind of forgets with SBK is not just their critique and their demand for liberation, but their demand to be involved in the research process to, to make the people's university is what they called it. And so they were really making that in, in that year and a half. They tried and they they did the best they could to sort of document everything that they were doing. And this was, you know, just a little over 100 people for a year and a half. And it's a ton of, of, of stuff. I mean, we've got 26 books of theirs now that wow. we've acquired in German. It's the largest collection of their work in the United States. Um, could be one of the largest collections of their work all in one place. For all we know, we're not totally sure. And that's kind of what working with SBK's work is like, because again, you know, the archive just doesn't exist. And so what we hope we can do is um, be able, and this might take a while, but this is sort of the the long-term, one of the long-term projects that Artie and I are working on is trying to you know, perhaps there's a second book all about SVK where we can spend, you know, a couple chapters getting into what what they were doing on a day-to-day basis, what their day-to-day activities were like, what some of the therapies were, what were some of the ways that they thought about reproducing their work and teaching people and what did these patient infos actually sort of say. And, you know, it's a it's a kind of project that, you know, is happening totally self-directed. I mean, it's just Artie and I we, we work together, we're, we're collaborators, we're partners, we work on death panel, and we write together, and we also have this long-term research project of trying to make this work available and also properly contextualize it in a way that's not just valuable to left movements now, but 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 can help build, um, you know, a kind of left global health justice movement going forward in the future. Yeah, amazing. Are there any kind of 
final points that you'd like to make? Sure, yeah. I guess I would just say that, you know, our real hope with the book is, and with health communism, some people have said, like, well, is it a plan? Is it? Can I read it and get an idea of where we're going? And the the hope is is uh, not to give everyone a plan. We don't have a plan to pass down to people. But what we hope is to 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 offer to folks some of what SPK hoped hoped to offer, which was to give people a toehold toward starting to understand their own experience, the way that whether they are surplus in in their current moment or not, whether they see themselves as sick or healthy, to start to realize that these boundaries and, and borders that we're used to thinking of dividing not only us, but r- resources and survival, that these are much more blurry than a lot of us actually realize. And that what's really important moving forward for the left is to embrace I think the fact that health is a myth, that health is labor discipline, and that health itself, as we as we think about it, is not something that is a personal responsibility, but this is a collective obligation. This is something that um, we all build for each other. And if we want to build liberatory left movements, regardless of what your particular issue is, a critique of health that's towards the abolition of capitalism is key and central to whatever you're doing because health exists in this kind of fundamental and really central relationship to capital. And if we want to actually build movements and critique that can challenge capitalism, that can scare the shit out of the state as much as SPK scared the shit out of the West German state in the 1970s, then starting from a point of understanding health as a fantasy toward the sort of sustained uh, equilibrium of capitalism and how important that fantasy is towards maintaining capitalism and maintaining our bodies for extraction and reducing our lives to extraction is is key. We, we can't get anywhere if we don't have the first step, if we don't have the toehold. And health communism is more than anything else a kind of call to people to sort of recognize what this can do for whatever it is else that they're doing and how together we can start to build a kind of collectivity and solidarity that refuses a lot of these social roles that that divide us or these ideas that separate us into workers and non-workers and that the real way forward that we we hope that people can sort of start to tease out in whatever they're doing, that it has to involve a critique of what health is and what health is for, especially, I think, moving forward in the context of COVID. You know, the COVID is ongoing. Um, we have, I think, an unprecedented labor crisis that's going to exist in COVID and mm-hmm. learning the lessons of things like the poor laws after the Black Death and the way that massive moments of sickness and changes to the kind of balance of, of power and distribution of resources via infectious diseases, these are moments of huge shift. And having a proper critique of health in this moment is going to be incredibly valuable towards building a kind of lasting model of 
leftist praxis. And right now what we have is one that's really tethered to, I think, having one foot in this uh, sort of space of, of playing the games uh, according to the rules of capitalism instead of starting to sort of write our own rules, build things, and also destroy them as we move forward and not just sort of relying on trying to seem reasonable and trying to make demands that we think are winnable, but really have the kind of bold you know, commitment to saying things that might seem a little quote unquote crazy. Sure. Um, because we know that, you know, whether, whether we are quote unquote crazy or not as leftists, like our speech, our desires, our demands for a world that's not so brutal and painful that capitalists will frame that as crazy, yeah. whether we have anything sort of reasonable on the table or not. So what's the kind of point in capitulating to that kind of normative mean or average if all it does is really throw your comrades under the bus, prevent these kind of ways of building solidarity outside of the nation, the community, outside of borders, and really towards like what kind of future can we even have in the context of COVID if we don't have this critique of health sort of central to all of our organizing and praxis? Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Beatrice for such a wonderful conversation. If you'd like to support Red Medicine, you can do so in a number of ways, including signing up at the website for a £1 a month donation, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or you could just share this episode with people you think would be interested. Thank you again for listening and I hope you can tune in next week where I'll be speaking to Stephen and Laura Shihai about psychoanalysis in Palestine.